What's up, everyone? Welcome to Weekends. I'm Anna Kasparian with Nando's Chicken. Yeah. <laughs> Nando. I'm a sexy Nando's it's... Peri Peri Chicken. That's what I am for Halloween. Just, uh, you know, it's just extra sexy. Got my extra hot Peri Peri sauce. Yeah. I just love spooky. it. Extra so spooky. I, I love I love your costume because it reminds me of, I think we were in D.C., uh, doing an episode of that fusion show that uh, TYT was doing for the 2016 elections. Yeah. And we just, we we had such a great meal there. And that was when I invited you to my wedding, like totally spontaneously. Oh, that's right. We went to Nando's. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, we were at Nando's. God. We were sitting there with John Iderola and I was like, oh yeah, you know, so I'm planning this wedding. It's coming up really soon. I'm really stressed out. And it's like, hey, Nando, you want to come to my wedding? Like I barely knew Nando at that point, but I just knew like, I felt it in my heart. I'm like, Nando's mm. good people. I want them you know, at my wedding. And you had a great that, time. All that stuff happens at Nando's. The good stuff happens at Nando's, you know? And you right. know, for those for those of you who don't know, Nando's is a is a British chicken chain. So we're doing this in solidarity with Jeremy Corbyn, who's been smeared um, as an anti-Semite wrongly and has been kicked out of the Labor Party. So solidarity with Jeremy Corbyn. Uh, and if you don't know what Nando's is, I think... Uh, you know, there's there's this music video that I found that I think would be a good a good intro for people. Kale, why don't you run it? You are, bro. How are you feeling today, mate? You know what? I feel kind of cheeky, mate. How are you feeling? Well, I feel kind of cheeky myself. Shall we? Shall we get a cheeky Nando's? Oi, oi, cheeky. Oi, oi. Cheeky Nando's. Medium art. Cheeky Nando's. Paradise sauce. Cheeky Nando's. Boneless fries. Cheeky Nando's. Spinner cheese on. Cheeky Nando's. Two sides of my wings. Cheeky Nando's. Peri Peri sauce. Yeah. Cheeky Nando's. Oh, with the boys. Cheeky Nando's. <laughs> I love it. Cheeky Nando's. <laughs> <laughs> that Cheeky was so Nando's. fun. Yeah. You know, like, you know, in the UK, if you want to take a girl out to like a nice date, you just go for Cheeky Nando's. You know, you take her to Nando's, you know, <laughs> buy her some Peri Peri chicken, some Peri Nice sauce, maybe some Portuguese rolls. And then, you know, you're. Mm. Mm, I yeah. forgot about those Portuguese rolls. So good. So um, good. By the way, we're not sponsored by them or anything. We just, you know, no. this is like a. a this is an organic conversation about a, a restaurant. Um, yeah. No, it was actually really delicious, too. That was the first time I had had it. Um, and I enjoyed it. Plantains or uh, platanos yeah, yeah, yeah. maduros. Platanos maduros. Mm-hmm. You know, it, you get the, you know, the, the, the boneless thighs. They're really good. Yeah, it's just it's just a good chicken chain. I'm surprised that it's not a bigger thing in the United States. I think they only have one in D.C., but it's like all over the U.K., mm-hmm. all over South Africa, like all the colonies, you know, um, it's all over like the, the those places. <laughs> so, yeah, it's yeah. Uh, it's good. If you haven't done it, check it out. So, yeah. But Anna, what's your what's your costume? Uh, I'm I'm um, I'm a colorless uh, Rubik's Cube. That's what I am. <laughs> the easiest Rubik's cube of all time. You just you just the move it. It's always one. the same. You win no matter what. You yeah. win no matter you, what. As soon okay. as you pick it up, you've won. Okay. okay. So okay. Yeah. No, I just nice. I'm I'm the joy kill of the show today. I apologize. Uh, Halloween was never really my thing. Every time I say that, I get like a wave of, of like angry comments because I get it. People do appreciate and love Halloween. It's just. It's too much effort for me. Like, yeah. I I don't like having to, like, think of a costume. I don't like having to buy or put together a costume. I'm not really a big fan of horror movies or scary movies. I just really enjoy 
sitting on its like sitting at a table with a group of people I love and enjoying a meal. So that's why I love Thanksgiving, not mm. what Thanksgiving really represents, but what mm. Thanksgiving has come to be. Um, but yeah, I just I'm a joy killer. I apologize. It's okay. It's okay. I mean, I I always say that I'm not going to like participate and then I get I get wrapped up in it every year. I mean, last year I was weird Al Yankovic. Um I, I was also then I was George Michael before. Um and I always kind of put together the costume at the last second. I never think of it and then it just comes to me and then I'm just like last second I'm scrambling. Uh so, but yeah, my girlfriend right now is making uh Halloween themed Rice Krispies treats. I can smell them. I mean, that's from the fun. other room. That's fun. Yeah. It's yeah. good stuff. I yeah. mean, the food stuff is good. Like, yeah. I mean, I think you guys can tell. I, I enjoy eating things, but I don't, um, I just, I'm so busy. Like, I can't imagine yeah. um, taking the time to put together. Like, the people who get serious about it, the cosplay people, like, I give them a lot of credit. But it's like mm. where they express their creativity, you know? As for me, my creativity is like in a different direction. Like, I like right. architecture. I like, yeah, I love interior design, that kind of stuff. But costumes, not for me. Well, well. but is, uh, yeah. and I have a question, is reading for you? Reading I is love for you? to read. You love to my read? My favorite. I especially okay, well, love to read books that are published by Verso. Verso books, yes. You know, and it's October 31st, which means that it's almost November. And that means new Verso book club picks, everybody. How exciting. If you join the Verso book club, you get every new ebook that Verso publishes each month, as well as one to three books in the mail. All Verso book club members will also get 50% off all books for as long as you are a subscriber. To celebrate 50 years of radical publishing, each member tier is 50% off for your first three months. The reader tier is only $5 a month and includes all of Verso's ebooks. That's 18 ebooks in the month of November. The Comrade tier is $20 a month, and if you join in November, you'll get Automation and the Future of Work by Aaron Benanev, Benanav, Benanav, Feminist International, How to Change Everything, wow, that sounds good, by Veronica Gago, Critical Encounters, Capitalism, Democracy, Ideas, by Wolfgang Streak, and The Corona Crash, How the Pandemic Will Change Capitalism, by friend of the show, Grace Blakely. Yeah. Good stuff. Love it. Love it. Super good stuff. Good stuff. Um, you know, it's important to have uh, these ideas published. A lot of uh, of these big, long-time publishers refuse to, uh, you know. I know from personal experience because I've been approached by publishers who are like, we want you to write a book. And then as soon as I start pitching topics, they're like, yeah, you know, we don't know if that's going to sell. We don't know. <laughs> And then I never end up doing it. But luckily, we have Verso that's putting these incredibly important ideas out there. Uh, and we have shows like this where we like to decode decode um, the conventional narratives that exist in the mainstream media. And since the election is coming up, Nando, yeah. uh, why don't we dedicate this episode to, uh, you know, the topics that really haven't been covered in depth yeah. and should yeah. be covered in depth in regard to, uh, you know, voters' feelings, why they vote, why they don't vote, who's likely to vote. Um, and I love your segment. I think it's so important. So why don't we start with your decode? All right. Sounds good. Wait, let me let me maybe let me maybe uh, get some free up some space here. All right. Let's <laughs> there go. <you> go. <laughs> <laughs> well, America and Jacobin viewers at home. The presidential election is right around the corner. The world's oldest democracy will engage in its quadrennial ritual in which we pick our next president. 
the leader of the free world. Can't escape it. Can't escape it. You got to talk about it. And just days out, here's a surprising stat. Donald Trump is actually doing better with voters of color than he did in 2016. What? Record scratch. After four years in power, Trump is actually improving his standings with minorities. I mean, you may be saying to yourself, Nando, I've been obsessively following the discourse, refreshing Twitter every two seconds for four years. Trump is a blatant racist and homophobe uh, and xenophobe, probably homophobe, xenophobe, and he hates people of color. It can't possibly be true that he's actually doing better with blacks and Latinos. Well, it's true. Just take a look at this headline at 538. Trump is losing ground with white voters, but gaining among black and Hispanic Americans. So the discourse is upside down. And if you dig into the details, it gets even more confounding. Democratic nominee Joe Biden is attracting more support than Hillary Clinton did among white voters as a whole, especially white women, older white voters, and those without a four-year college degree, which has helped them build a substantial lead of around 10 points, according to 538's national polling average. However, Trump is performing slightly better than last time among college-educated white voters, and he has gained among voters of color, especially Hispanic voters and younger black voters. So white working class voters who everyone was obsessed with and everyone credited with delivering the election to Trump in 2016 are abandoning him big time. According to 538, Trump beat Hillary Clinton amongst white voters without a college degree by 25 points. His current lead with white voters without a college degree, 12 points. But the weird thing is that Trump is also doing better with voters of color, especially younger black voters and crucially Latino men. And Torres is part of about or just over a quarter of Latinos who are strongly or somewhat in support of this president. Michelle Mayorga, a New Mexico-based pollster, says the backbone of the support comes from men. Hispanic men in particular are a swing vote. They're a vote that we have to go and get. And while Democrats will likely win the majority of Latino votes overall, the margins are narrower with men. A New York Times-Siena College poll found the vice president, Joe Biden, leads by 34 percentage points among Latina voters. But with Latino men, his lead is just eight points. So Biden only has an eight-point lead amongst Latino men, which I think would surprise most people. Now, for decades, Democratic strategists have been dreaming of the permanent demographic majority for their coalition. Back in 2002, Rui Teixeira and John Judas wrote a book called The Emerging Democratic Majority. In it, they argued that in the wake of George McGovern's historic defeat in 1972, the Democratic Party was putting together an alliance of minorities, working and single women, the college-educated and skilled professionals that would simply outnumber the Republican coalition for good. They called this phenomenon George McGovern's Revenge. And on the heels of Barack Obama's comfortable re-election win in 2012, which came on the 10th anniversary of the release of that book, Teixeira and Judas gloated in the Atlantic, we are now 10 years farther down this road and McGovern's revenge only seems sweeter. Barack Obama has just been re-elected, the first Democratic president since Franklin Roosevelt to win successive elections with more than 50% of the vote powered by the continuing rise of the coalition described in the book. In the face of considerable economic adversity, Obama won 332 electoral college votes, nine out of the 10 most hotly contested swing states, and a second term with a coalition that was stunningly diverse. They continued, It would be hard to imagine a better 10th anniversary present for the emerging Democratic majority, but, this will, but will this new coalition be able to hold together over the long term? Well, that depends on whether the Democrats can provide this coalition with what it wants and needs. 
As we said in the concluding paragraph of our book, today's Americans want government to play an active and responsible role in American life, guaranteeing a reasonable level of economic security to Americans rather than leaving them at the mercy of the market and the business cycle. They want to preserve and strengthen Social Security and Medicare rather than privatize them. They want to modernize and upgrade public education, not abandon it. They want to exploit new biotechnologies and computer technologies in order to improve the quality of life. They do not want science held hostage to a religious or ideological agenda. And they want the social gains of the 60s consolidated, not rolled back. The wounds of race healed, not inflamed. If the Democrats can do all that, the emerging Democratic majority could be here to stay. Well, clearly... Democrats failed miserably because in 2016, just four years later, we got. You know what I like about this? Number one, I'm in love and you're in love. We're all in love together. We've done something that nobody's ever done. Oh, yeah. And part of the reason that we all got to feel that sweet, sweet Trump love was that there was a lack of turnout from Latinos for Hillary Clinton. Now, remember what Teixeira and Judas said, that the coalition would hold so long as Democrats delivered to the coalition what it wants and needs. And while immigration is not the sole issue that Latinos care about, it is a sort of a gateway issue. And here's what candidate Obama said about it in 2008. The American people need us to put an end to the petty partisanship that passes for politics in Washington. And they need us to enact comprehensive immigration reform once and for all. They need not, we can't wait 20 years from now to do it. We can't wait 10 years from now to do it. We need to do it by the end of my first term as president of the United States of America. Now, of course, Barack Obama was president for eight years and comprehensive immigration reform did not happen. And Univision's Jorge Ramos constantly reminded him of that fact. It was so, a promise, Mr. President. I am going to switch to English because this is very yeah. important. I don't want it to right. get lost in translation. Right. You promised that. Right. And uh, a promise is a promise. And, and with all due respect... But you didn't keep that promise. Well, In fact, in 2004, George W. Bush ran his re-election campaign promising to pass comprehensive immigration reform, and he got a staggering 40% of the Latino vote, the highest ever for Republican. Think about how much times have changed. But of course, deportations have been a fully bipartisan affair. In fact, it was Rahm Emanuel who was the architect of mass deportation when he was an advisor to Bill Clinton in the 90s. In the wake of NAFTA, which destroyed the livelihood of small farms in Mexico, millions of Mexicans were forced off the land. And the U.S. planners understood this and foresaw a wave of immigrants coming across the border. And in a 1996 memo written by Rahm to Slick Willie, Emmanuel advised Clinton, then starting his second term, to add more immigration hearings across six states, Illinois included, so that he could, quote, claim and achieve record deportations of criminal aliens. George W. Bush then ramped up deportations in the xenophobic climate post 9-11, while Barack Obama cranked them up to hitherto unseen heights, earning the ignominious moniker of deporter-in-chief after kicking out some 2.5 million people more than any president in American history. Now, of course, the political system has also failed to deliver the goods to Latinos economically. And in fact, the bipartisan free trade agreements like NAFTA have devastated the Latino community. According to a report by the Labor, Labor Council for Latin American Advancement, NAFTA's U.S. economic damage has been greatest in regions where the Latino population is concentrated. The 15 states where 85% of Latinos reside account for nearly half 
of the more than 950,000 NAFTA job losses certified under the TAA program. As NAFTA eliminated U.S. manufacturing jobs, the related wage stagnation for workers without college educations across all industries hit Latinos asymmetrically. Rather than the Latino white pay gap closing, it increased during the NAFTA years. So you can't really blame Latinos for not really trusting the Democratic Party. But there was one guy they did trust. I'm trying to remember his name. Es un hombre con muchas visiones para mejorar a este país. Corriendo para ser presidente, pero los ricos no lo quieren aquí. Bernie Sanders se llama el compa. Su quemazón ahora van a sentir. Bernie Sanders yes. se llama el compa. Hell yeah. Latinos absolutely loved Theo Bernie. In 2016, Bernie actually lost the Latino vote to Hillary Clinton, but by 2020, the nation's fastest growing demographic was on board with democratic socialism. As Matt Carp wrote in Jacobin, quote, a serious class analysis of the evolving Sanders coalition must also take note of the massive group Bernie brought into the fold this year. Latino voters, the fastest growing portion of America's working class electorate. All over the greater Southwest, from the Rio Grande in Texas to California's Central Valley, Sanders dominated the Latino districts that he had mostly lost to Hillary Clinton in 2016. In heavily Latino neighborhoods from East Los Angeles to Northside Houston, Teal Bernie often won more votes than Biden, Bloomberg, and Warren combined. This was not a regional, regional phenomenon, nor was it limited to Mexican-American areas. Sanders also won big with working-class Puerto Rican and Dominican-American voters in Holyoke and Lawrence, Massachusetts, as well as in Central American immigrant neighborhoods in Central L.A. and Southwest Houston. In nearly all these places, Sanders had to overcome the opposition of the Latino political class, which was scarcely more favorable to him than the black political establishment. By early March, Sanders had received just two endorsements from the Congressional Hispanic Caucus. Biden had 14 Yet there is no such thing as a Latino Obama, and the institutional ties linking Latino voters to the Democratic establishment, we learned this year, may be relatively weak. In the end, a few Latino leaders delivered their constituents, few Latino leaders delivered their constituents to Biden across four Southern California congressional districts represented by Lucille Roybal Ayard, Lou Correa, Tony Cardenas, and Juan Vargas. Biden endorsers all. Sanders beat his multiple rivals, rivals with an outright majority of votes. So, if you look at it, Trump is doing surprisingly well with Latinos. Bernie did really well with Latinos. They seem to be disillusioned with the Democratic establishment. It seems like organizing and radicalizing the gettable Latino vote should be the top priority of the left. In his postmortem on the Bernie campaign for Jacobin, Connor Kilpatrick made this exact point. Instead of waiting around for the squad to take the lead, we should take a closer look at where Sanders ran strongest this time and start turning those votes into political power. And the first step should be organizing the Latino-dominated communities in the West who went wild for the Democratic Socialist. In a seven-way race, Sanders won nearly 40% of L.A. County voters, over 50% in some congressional district, yet there are no outspoken Bernie-crat officials representing them. Why the hell not? If we can get a Sanders elected to the Senate in Vermont, what about New Mexico or Colorado or Hawaii? Why isn't the House of Representatives teeming with Bernie-crat congressmen in the, from the West and Southwest? Imagine that. It could happen. It's up to us. If not, we risk losing these voters to the Trumpist right. The Democrats have failed them, but the socialism can win them over. Working class Latinos could be the key to countering the weight of the newest and hottest demographic in the Democratic Party coalition, rich suburban whites who will never be on board 
with even mild redistributive policies. Yeah, I love that. Um, you know, some of the numbers were pretty surprising to me, um, especially because we're so inundated with media constantly telling us that the number one issue for everyone in this country is identity-related stuff. Mm -hmm. And while I, I don't doubt that a portion of that is important to some voters, uh, what impacts their lives every single day? It's their material conditions, you know? Mm -hmm. And so you have Bernie Sanders come in and encourage and, and fire up people who had no interest in voting in the first place, by the way, had, had completely abandoned electoral politics because they feel like it hasn't in any way improved their lives. And he fires them up. They show up in Nevada in record numbers to uh, vote for him in the Democratic primary. But the narrative that we kept hearing over and over and over again in election coverage was that, uh, you know, the most electable candidate in this field is going to be Joe Biden. And so he's, I think, unsuccessfully in a lot of ways, trying to like straddle this line between appealing to the wealthy white voters who they care about their tax cuts. Like they're going to go with Trump. They don't they don't care about anything else. OK, I've seen it in in. I've seen it play out. And then also pretending like he's a better candidate for minorities in the country when, you know, you look at the last few decades and the evidence just doesn't bear that out. Um, yeah. And then, of course, he has a slip ups where he says, you're not black if you uh, don't vote for me. That kind <laughs> yeah. of stuff doesn't play well with people. Right. So if someone comes to me and says, you're not Armenian unless you do X, Y and Z, I, I that's insanely insulting yeah. and offensive. And so when you hinge a lot of your uh, politics on identity and then you don't deliver there are consequences not only for your own election, but for elections to come, right? And and the narrative of Biden being more electable, there was no evidence of that. Yeah. It was just a line that everyone seemed to use in corporate media without providing any evidence of it, and then they would move forward. And one other thing about corporate media, I mean, the disdain toward working Americans is real. Um, I was just re listening to an interview with Adolph Reed on Useful Idiots, um, and by the way, we're, we're going to interview Adolf Reed on the show today as well. And he, they brought up the fact that Joanne Reed, in response to Bernie's policy of free public college, said that, uh, you know, these are like people who uh, show up to your house and they like crash on your on, on your you know couch. Like <sighs> they're just they're bums. They're losers, like people who want free college. The disdain is real. It's there. Yeah. And you can see it in the. Uh, corporate media that tends to back corporate Democrats. You can see it in the platform of the DNC, um, which is why, while I do think it's important to get Trump out of office, I also think it's important to be real about what a Biden presidency really means. And I see it as an opportunity. I really think that the left has an opportunity here to compete with the right wing on providing a much better alternative to what we're going to experience um, during Biden's presidency if he gets elected. Yeah, um, and and you know, with Latino voters, I mean, there's this is something that you you know well is that you know politicians we watch politicians like bend over backwards for Cuban American voters in Florida. There's there's nine hundred thousand Cuban American voters in Florida. There's something like eight hundred thousand Puerto Rican American voters in Florida, and but and then but in overall in the Latino vote. 
there's 70% of them are Mexican Americans. Like some Mexican Americans dominate the sort of voting block broadly understood as the Latino vote. And if Biden comes in and continues with the deportations, right? I mean, it's just going to like with Mexican Americans, like think about the numbers, 2.5 million people deported under Obama. And there's like between 11 and 15 million undocumented people in this country. I mean, it, just by sheer numbers, like these people have like social links, like they have friends and they have aunts and uncles and, and cousins or whatever. Like people personally know a lot of people who have been deported in the Latino uh, community. So think about how traumatic that is to be deported from a, from your country, like from the country that you're living in, like you just get forcibly removed. Like it's, it's a pretty traumatic thing. And for Obama, like constantly used the excuse that like, Oh, the Republicans in Congress, the Republicans in Congress, the Republicans in Congress, you could, as president, you could like, you have pretty broad authority to slow that down, to minimize it as much as you can. There's no like law that you need to pass. It's not like the federal agencies are just, you know, doing stuff on their own. If the president were to intervene, you know, they could, they could stop the deportations pretty dramatically. They have broad latitude to do it. And it's such a, such a disastrous thing. And it creates so much cynicism in, in the, in amongst, amongst Mexican Americans, especially, um, and Central Americans, um, that it, it, if Biden does that again, you know, if he ramps them up again, like you could lose a lot of these people to the right wing. I mean, they're going to be like, okay, well, both these parties, like, uh, it's the same. It's the, that cynicism is 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 like Tinder for the right. You know, that's how they. That's what they feed on. You know, like they'd rather than have like the you know the strong asshole rather than you know the the meek Democrat. So it's going to be such a key thing, and like no one talks about it. Like immigration has been completely off of this campaign trail, probably for the best. I mean, I don't think it's like a great issue for for liberals or the you know like it's just the Trump the the, the right wing is just very much like you know has like a it's more fertile ground for them, you know, like no one really outside well, of like people who are immediately impacted it. No one really cares about it on the sort of. No, well, let, let me, side. let me jump in about it. I, I actually think um, people do care about it quite a bit in, in today's political climate. And the reason why I think that is because Trump relied on his anti-immigration message uh, to basically get people to vote for him, right? To get the support that he had in 2016. And, and people like to automatically assume that it's because we live in a deeply racist country. And to be sure, we do have uh, racial issues in this country. There's no question. However, we also have to look at people's material conditions, right? And so there's a lot of anger. There's a lot of frustration about uh, the economic situation that the majority of Americans are living under right now. And it's it creates an environment that's easy to exploit for divide and conquer strategies. So, you know, I, I agree with you. I'm, re- I'm glad that that topic wasn't like front and center uh, with this election, because to be quite honest with you, especially during the pandemic, when so many Americans are feeling uh, the financial pressure and the lack of help from the federal government, it would have been so easy for Trump to come in and say, yeah. oh, you're experiencing this because these people are taking your jobs. These people are uh, causing harm in your communities. They're, you know... And, it's just easier for the right wing to message that. And Democrats haven't been able because they haven't really addressed the material conditions of Americans. They haven't been able to uh, have a competing message or a counterpoint to that. Um, so and, and one other thing, I, I'm curious, because whenever I see Democrats, Democratic candidates make all these mistakes in their campaigning, I think about the 
mindset of the failure strategist that they're paying an insane amount of money to give them advice for. So do you think that this necessity to appeal to Cuban voters in Florida who overwhelmingly are Republican, do you think that comes from this need to uh, just increase the chances of winning that state because of the electoral college? Because in California, I mean, There's a huge Mexican population in California, of course, and California is always going to vote blue. Mm -hmm. So do you think that's why uh, Biden has decided to focus on uh, Cuban voters who are just not going to I don't think they're going to vote for him? No, I mean, well, I, you can make the same. I mean, obviously, there's a ton of Mexican in California, but there's tons of Mexicans in Texas. You know, <laughs> if if like yeah. the Democratic, if there was an effective organizing uh, effort in Texas to to organize the, the millions and millions of Mexican Americans who live there, um, imagine if imagine if the Democrats were able to flip Texas for good. Like they would never lose an election. Like, that, like that's game over. You know what I mean? Um, so, yeah. but there is the obsessive focus on Florida because it's seen as a traditional swing state, and because Cuban American voters are much more well organized. I mean, they they have those they have those um, political links to power centers in Washington. I mean, the history of it is we, we all know it's like just because they're you know very serviceable for U.S. empire interests and stuff, whereas Mexican Americans are, are useless in terms of U.S. empire. So, um, but but the, but those links are real and those power centers are real. There are powerful Cuban Americans in Washington. There are not many powerful Mexican Americans in Washington, even though Mexican Americans dwarf the Cuban population, like absolutely dwarf them in states that matter in elections. I mean, yes, California doesn't matter for the Democrats, but the the, the Arizona matters, New Mexico matters, Nevada mar- matters, and Texas could matter. There are tons of unregistered um, Latino voters in Texas, like, but there is just no effort to organize those people. There's just zero. They're they're just completely they're they're completely invisible from the conversation. Bernie actually attempted with a very concerted concerted effort to actually make meaningful ties with these communities. I mean, he didn't do the Warren Julian Castro thing in which like it was all just superficial bullshit about like, you know, well, we stay Latinx here, you know, and stuff. And it's like they don't give a shit about that, you know, like they give a shit about. Are you going to stop deporting people that I know? Are you going to deliver health care to me? Are you going to make my economic life more secure? Like those bread and butter issues. Again, it's not rocket science. It's not some consultant yep. trick about, you know, saying the right words or playing the right song in the thing. It's like, again, politics is much more simple bread and butter issues that affect people's daily lives and you can win them. But there is no effort to organize those people. Instead, there's this kind of inertia around the conventional wisdom that you have to, uh, you know, try to outflank the Republicans on the right on issues like Hugo Chavez and Fidel Castro to win Latino voters in Florida. Even though Barack Obama won Florida handily two times while not really pandering to that idea, right? That that Those lessons were not learned. Like Obama ran on rapprochement with Cuba. He did not run on like this furious frothing at the mouth, you know, we got to murder all uh, people in the Castro regime, which is like, you know, what Biden is really trying to do. I mean, not, I'm exaggerating a little, but he is, he has been tweeting constantly about like the evils of, you know, Venezuelan uh, socialism and Cuba and stuff like that. You know, he's trying to outflank Trump on the right in this issue. And like the, the, these Lincoln Project guys who are dominant within the Biden campaign are making the point that Trump is more like Castro. You know, they're trying to link Trump to Castro. It's amazing. It's amazing. You know, um, <laughs> but again, it's not going to work. <laughs> like, they're never going to they're never going to see the Cuban Americans in Miami who care about that stuff 
and that's like that's a specific cohort that they're trying to win over, will always see the Republicans as more reliable, reliable anti-communists for a million reasons, from the fact that Kennedy abandoned them in the Bay of Pigs to Janet Reno and Bill Clinton sending Elion back home uh, in the late 90s. Like for a million reasons, they're going to see the Republicans as more reliable anti-communists. It's never going to work. You're never going to outflank them on that issue. So just stop. Just stop trying. Obama stopped yeah. trying and he won. Yeah, and and you're right. I, the most frustrating part about electoral politics is how simple it can be to win. Yeah, right. And and all you have to focus. I mean, you'll see it in my decode segment. Um, people are very clear about what they need and how they've given up on politics because they don't think either party is going to give them what they need to just live a better life in the, like the richest country in the world. Um, but I, I think that look it. Neoliberalism is the Democratic Party's ideology. It just mm-hmm. is. And so when we say that they're not learning lessons, it's because they don't want to. Learning that lesson would conflict with their deeply held beliefs and values. And mm-hmm. so that's why they don't focus on wages. They pretend to, you know, you'll get a little bit of, uh, you know, surface level BS about how they're going to improve people's wages. Uh, but just think about how that conversation went down in 2016. I mean, you have Bernie Sanders in the primary uh, saying, no, you need $15 minimum wage. And then you have Hillary Clinton, right, who I think symbolizes neoliberalism perfectly in this country, yeah. saying like, shape. no, no, let's, yeah, let's nickel and dime. Let's nickel and dime the American people who have increased their productivity, who work incredibly hard, who literally make these whole corporation, multinational corporations run. Okay, let's nickel and dime them $12 an hour. Well, that's not a popular message. It's just not. And honestly, right now, if you run the numbers, $15 an hour, not enough, not a living wage in many parts of this country. So I think even uh, us on the left need to be real about that and demand more than $15 an hour. Um, But anyway, so I love that segment. And there was one other thing I wanted to mention. Oh, that. I love that you mentioned uh, George uh, George McGovern's revenge. Yeah, like yeah, yeah. professional that's, that's... whites, college educated whites with minorities. That's that's what the Democrats have been trying to build instead of just building a working class multiracial coalition, which is like which would be the only way to deliver those goods that Rui Teixeira and John Judas um, talk about. You cannot deliver those goods if you're mixing the coalition with these kind of rich suburban professionals, like they're just not going to be on board with redistributive policies. And if that's the power center, it's just never going to happen. You know, like you need to build a working class coalition. That's the only way it's ever happened in the history of politics, in the history of the world. Like it's just, it's just, it's not rocket science. You see it playing out on a hyper local level as well. I mean, in Los Angeles with, you know, the whole not in my backyard uh, uh, culture, Uh, When it comes to building affordable housing in certain neighborhoods, I mean, people get fired up. You'll see, uh, you know, the PMC showing up to the streets to protest immediately as soon as there's some sort of proposal to build uh, a shelter or affordable housing in, um, you know, a moderately wealthy neighborhood. Did you see, uh, you mentioned Los Angeles and like, you know, this kind of type of politics. Eric Garcetti yesterday rolled out a policy and (laughs) here's his tweet about his new policy. Don't get me started. It goes, this is an actual tweet from Eric Garcetti, mayor of LA. We're delivering assistance to Angelinos facing economic hardship during the COVID-19 pandemic. Starting on Monday with our new early pay LA program, LA.official will offer $20 discount on parking citations paid within 24 hours. 
Oh my God. Eric Garcetti. I hate Eric. Like Eric Garcetti gets under my skin probably more than any politician in the country right now. Yeah. Um, he is feckless. He Can you is believe that? Ineffective. He is a product of nepotism. The the city of LA is a disaster right now. The county of LA is a disaster. You have entire homeless encampments on the freeway right now. Okay. Like on the side of the freeway. How is this? What? What, what is happening? No, I, I, look, I, $20 think like discount actually... on parking tickets paid within 48 hours. <laughs> That'll really fix it. That'll really solve it. I can't stand him. And 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 then you have Biden possibly thinking about uh, appointing him as the transportation yeah. secretary so he can oversee infrastructure projects. Eric Garcetti has failed infrastructure projects in Los Angeles. We have paid more in taxes. Like overwhelmingly, Angelinos agree to paying more in taxes to build affordable housing. And what did he do? How much, how, how, where's the affordable housing construction? I've seen a lot of construction when it comes to condominiums. I've seen a lot of construction from, yeah. uh, disgusting corporate real estate developers who build luxury apartments that literally sit empty. What is Garcetti doing? Garcetti is trash. I can't stand yeah. him. Anyway. All right. You, you, uh, hit a nerve there. Yeah, I know. I know. All right. <laughs> All right. You do so, you. Let out that energy I'm, I'm in your gonna... decode segment. <laughs> oh, I'm ready. I'm ready. So you touched on this in an earlier decode, but I thought it was worth exploring it again, Nando. So um, so with the general election coming up, rapidly approaching, the question is always about who eligible voters are going to vote for. We've seen countless segments in cable news about it. We see countless articles in publications like 538. We've got to look at the polling. We've got to look at the data. Oh, how is Trump doing in swing states? How's Biden doing in swing states? And all of that data, to be fair, is important, but it does tend to leave out the largest voting block. And the largest voting block consists of non-voters, people who are eligible to vote, but year after year or election after election, I should say, refuse to cast a ballot. And so just how large is this voting block? Well, let's take a look. And back in 2016, it's a pattern that we saw there, too. For example, 100 million people who were eligible to vote simply chose not to cast their ballot for either candidate. That's about 41 percent of people who could have voted. And so we're seeing that play out in McDowell County, West Virginia. And as you mentioned, Hallie, this is a county with the lowest voter turnout in the county and in the contiguous United States. So we asked people there why they chose not to vote in 2016 and if 2020 would be any different, especially given that more than 63% of that county chose not to vote in 2016. That's about 11,000 people. Mm, Well, spoiler alert, uh, their feelings aren't any different, and we'll get back to them in just a second. But let's uh, dip into some historical numbers to see what Americans have, what the trends are when it comes to this block of non-voters. Well, since the 1960s, according to the New York Times, between a third and a half of eligible voters have stayed home during presidential elections, resulting in one of the lowest rates of voter turnout among America's developed peers. Since the early 1900s, the high point for presidential turnout was in 1960, when 63.8% of eligible voters or adults voted. Most recently, the highest peak was in 2008, when 61.6% turned out. 
And of course, we all remember that election. That was when Obama ran against John McCain. And of course, Obama relied on this message of hope and change. He presented himself as this progressive, someone who really wanted to end wars abroad and reinvest the money that we had been wasting in those wars uh, into our workers, uh, helping to improve the lives of average, ordinary Americans. And he failed. He failed to do that. He got elected into office, and we all know what happened. Uh, giant bailouts for Wall Street. Uh, no, Virtually no help for Main Street. Average Americans were losing their homes in record numbers. They weren't getting bailed out. And so that message of hope and change was something that uh, was definitely used in campaigning, but Obama's first term didn't actually bear that out. And so that creates a situation of distrust, right? This environment of distrust toward politicians, political leaders, people who promise to improve the material conditions of Americans, but then fail to actually carry that out. So the real question is, why? If so much is on the line, especially in this election, what keeps Americans at home? What is their reasoning? And fortunately, uh, we did hear from some of the fine people over at West Virginia. Let's listen. I don't have TV. I don't have internet. Well, I have internet, so I have nothing to get on the internet with. You know what I mean? I'm pretty far behind. <laughs> and I bet you a lot of us around here are because we're poor. I don't know nothing about Joe. I, I ain't never heard nothing about him at all since I've been here. So, uh, Donald Trump, I know a little bit about him for the past couple of years. One, Trump is good. Two, however you pronounce his name, he's good too. But like I say, I can't judge either one of them. It's the same community. It ain't never going to change because it was going to change. None of this would look like this right here. Here in Welch. Welch ain't changed in last three or four presidents. Nothing's changing. These are people who are living in poverty Uh, The first woman we heard from says that she has the internet, but she doesn't have a device to even utilize the internet on. And their economic situation has remained the same regardless of who's in office, regardless of whether it's George W. Bush, Barack Obama, Donald Trump. They haven't noticed any change in their material conditions. So if it seems like the election doesn't actually matter to your life, to your immediate conditions, why would you take the time or have the energy to go out of your way to cast a ballot for either member that's running, whether it's Donald Trump or Joe Biden? That is the reasoning. And the first woman also noted that I haven't even, I haven't heard from Joe Biden because he's not doing campaigning in McDowell, West Virginia. And I think that's relevant. It's relevant to pay attention to who gets neglected when it comes to campaign strategy. Now, poll after poll shows that Americans living in poverty are less likely to vote because they don't believe anything will fundamentally change. Well, to be fair, Biden did tell his Wall Street donors that under his presidency, nothing will fundamentally change. So that's an issue as well. And the New York Times did notice a similar trend. So, for instance, they highlighted the story Um, They highlighted the story of a Pennsylvania resident named Kiana Frederick, who didn't vote in 2016 and uh, is not convinced that she needs to vote in 2020 either. She was quoted as saying, politicians abandon voters like a bad mom or dad who promises to come and see you. And I'm sitting outside with my bags packed and they never show up. It's a pretty powerful statement. Um, And the imagery is important for 
political leaders of these so-called elite to understand, to take note of, but they are invested in ignoring that kind of message. Um, and uh, class does have a lot to do with whether or not um, eligible voters are going to cast about. For instance, in 2016, Americans who did not vote were more likely to be poor, less likely to have a college degree, and more likely to be a single parent than the people who did vote. Um, and then also... In 2016, um, the analysis showed that three quarters of those living in households earning less than $150,000 voted compared with less than half of those in households earning less than $25,000. So it's amazing to me how, you know, you get those get out the vote campaigns. Like we've talked about it. Uh, Nando did a wonderful decode on it where, you know, you have these celebrities who are encouraging people to vote, like go out there and vote, go out there and vote. But these campaigns don't ever really focus on holding our politicians accountable to ensure that they have the right policies that appeal to people. So they actually do feel the need to get out and vote. In fact, like how could you not roll your eyes at those campaigns When they're talking about how Trump is an existential threat or you have to vote for Biden or you have to do this, you have to go out there, you got to do it. It's the most important election of the lifetime of your lifetime. When they literally hear that messaging every single election season and again, nothing changes and it doesn't even matter who ends up getting elected. Again, I'm talking specifically about material conditions and I think it's undeniable that nothing changes. Um, so the Financial Times also looked into something that I think was ignored by corporate media during the 2016 election, and that was the topic of NAFTA and the messaging that Donald Trump relied on to appeal to working class Americans. Let's take a quick look at that. Dollars, capital yes. can go wherever it wants. Jobs stay on the ground. And in particular, union jobs came under pressure with deal, with deals like NAFTA, with the China, China coming into the WTO. That all happened in the last 20 years. I can imagine if I were a middle class African American voter working in Detroit, I would kind of be scratching my head. You know, the Clintons, are they really for Mm. me? Are they protecting my jobs? And Hillary didn't have that kind of good old boy Southern feel that was very attractive to particularly in the South amongst the African-American votes. She was from Chicago. uh, And there was just not that enthusiasm for her the way there was for Bill. Right. You know, it's it's interesting because I'm going back in my mind to 2016 and I'm, I'm seeing her in the first debate with Trump. And the minute he hit her on NAFTA, I thought, oh, gosh, she's toast. Uh, Because I thought, this is the thing. Those jobs. Those jobs. And it it doesn't even matter. White, black workers, it doesn't matter. It's very, very hard to change the fact that a bet was made that America was going to go up the sort of, you know, economic pyramid, that we were going to let those jobs go so that we could all be software developers and bankers. Guess what? That didn't turn out so well. Yes. (laughs) No, it didn't turn out so well. (laughs) And uh, NAFTA was successfully used by Trump uh, to encourage uh, people to vote for him. And by the way, again, going back to corporate media, every once in a while, they do an okay job putting out data, putting out articles uh, that show what the real sentiment is. Uh, you know, among working class voters, uh, they expressed a profound distrust of politics and doubted their voice or their vote would have an effect, they write. They felt a sense of foreboding about the country and saw politics as one of the main forces doing the threatening. Many were not part- particularly partisan and said they shrank from people who were. And so, 
Even uh, polling that was done by uh, 538 shows this, and this is uh, data about the 2020 election, which should have us concerned. So if you look at the numbers, people who are earning less than $40,000 are less likely to vote. They represent the largest voting block. Non-voters uh, are the largest voting block. Now, uh, if you go down uh, this list, you'll see that people earning um, $125,000 or more are much more likely to show up and cast a ballot. And so the current economic situation is something we should also consider. It is an absolute nightmare for the vast majority of Americans. Even the numbers that have been released by the Bureau of Labor Statistics does not fully capture the economic pain that the majority, literally the majority of Americans are feeling right now during this pandemic. So the official unemployment rate, for instance, is at 7.9%. But as we know, that number is incredibly misleading because it leaves out a number of people who uh, either are uh, underemployed, meaning they're looking for full-time work but can't find it, or uh, they're not earning a livable wage, or people who have just given up altogether in finding a job. When you consider all those statistics, uh, the numbers are actually pretty depressing, shocking, and are never fully addressed. Luckily, we have people like Richard Wolff who break it down for us. 46% of white Americans in America right now, over 16, are earning more than $20,000 a year. 40 6%. That means the majority of white Americans over 16, the majority, are not doing a full-time job earning $20,000 or more. And among uh, black Americans, it's 40.8%. So the majority of whites and blacks in our country that are over 16 don't have a full-time job earning $20,000 or more. So that means 54% of working-age white Americans are not earning more than $20,000 a year. Just let that sink in for a second. I mean, I didn't even know it was that bad. I knew that the economic situation for the majority of Americans was pretty terrible. But these numbers are just absolutely devastating. And when you have one candidate say to, again, Wall Street donors, nothing will fundamentally change. And then you have an unhinged lunatic who pretends like he cares about the working conditions of Americans or the economic conditions of Americans. It really does put the Democratic Party at a disadvantage. And the fact that the Democratic Party refuses to acknowledge that is beyond frustrating. So rather than focusing incessantly on Bernie supporters who might not vote in this election or who might vote third party, honestly, a very negligible portion of the electorate. Maybe the Democratic Party needs to take a good hard look at the very issues they have intentionally abandoned in order to appeal to their Wall Street donors or to Lincoln Project Never Republicans. I'm sorry, Never Trump Republicans. And um, it's also kind of interesting to uh, look at how the material conditions of people who are already wealthy have changed during this pandemic. From March to June 2020, Amazon founder Jeff Bezos saw his wealth rise by an estimated $48 billion. The founder of the video conferencing platform Zoom grew his nest egg by over $2.5 billion. And former Microsoft CEO Steve Ballmer's net worth increased by $15.7 billion. 
These kinds of examples might lead you to think that when billionaires profit during a crisis, it's just a matter of right place, right time. Well, that's not false, but it's not entirely true either. Casino magnate Sheldon Adelson saw his wealth increase by $5 billion, while Elon Musk saw an increase of $17.2 billion. The rich certainly got richer uh, during the pandemic. Uh, Jeff Bezos, Elon Musk, I mean, they've been raking it in during the pandemic, while simultaneously the federal government has failed to release another incredibly important and much needed stimulus package for working Americans. And so material conditions haven't changed. They've gotten much worse. The federal government has completely abandoned uh, average Americans. And so how are you going to persuade these people to show up to the polls? And I just haven't seen a concerted effort by the Biden campaign to do it. The effort so far has been, let's sit back and give Donald Trump enough rope to hang himself. And that has made my has made me uncomfortable. I know there are people who feel confident that he's going to win. And to be sure, I hope he does win. I want him to win because I do see Donald Trump as a threat. But at the same time, what's been frustrating is that all of this advice, all of this data, the, the, the facts on the ground, what's really happening in America has been ignored. And it is a risky strategy that's been uh, deployed by the Biden campaign. And let's also be fair about the Trump administration and what they're saying about the economic uh, situation during the pandemic, because They've also abandoned average working Americans. So, for instance, um, the rise in COVID cases uh, raises the prospect of another wave of lockdowns, which is going to be horrendous for people who are lucky enough to still have a job. Uh, it can cripple the economy. El Paso and Newark have introduced curfews to curb the surges in coronavirus cases in their jurisdictions. And so Trump has been awful in the response to coronavirus. That has hurt the economy even more for Americans. And then you look at some of the messaging coming from people who work for him, like uh, Joseph Lavorgna, who is the chief economist at the White House National Economic Council. He said that the underlying American economy remained fundamentally strong. And because for him, all that really matters is the stock market. He's not looking at the unemployment rate. He's not looking at what average wages are for people who are working. All he's looking at is, how's the stock market doing? And so when the stock market took a dip this week because of a lack of stimulus from the federal government, he blamed it on Europe, saying, Europe is worse. And that spillover is happening. But the difference is, in the United States, is the data looks a lot better than it has in Europe. We're not going to lock down like they are in Europe, Europe is leading global stock markets lower. So he's essentially saying, no, no, we're going to be fine. As long as we force people to work in dangerous conditions, as long as we force people to work during this pandemic, as long as we avoid another shutdown, we should be okay. And what he means is the stock market should rebound. He's not concerned about people dying. He's not concerned about people getting sick. He's not even considering the possibility of the federal government providing stimulus to keep people safe in their homes while also not threatening their material conditions. So both parties have been disastrous on this very issue. And it's not rocket science. It's very easy to have a message, have a platform that appeals to the vast majority of Americans and also appeals to this giant block of eligible non-voters.
but they just won't do it because of a litany of reasons. Of course, neoliberal ideology is something that uh, has dominated both political parties in this country, Uh, but they're paid to essentially continue pushing for that type of ideology and avoid ever addressing the real bread and butter concerns of average Americans in the U.S. Yeah, no, and it's it's I mean, what I what I find pretty clear is that if we sit around and wait for the liberals and the Democratic Party to to do that, we're going to be waiting forever. They're just not going to do it. I mean, the only time we've ever had any sort of redistributive policies in this country was broadly speaking in like from the 1930s through the 1960s, like the New Deal era. And that was built by a very large labor movement with very large and powerful communist parties and socialist parties in the United States that were involved in the labor movement. Um, It was the left that organized workers. It wasn't the liberals. Liberals would never have done it. Um, And then they spent, obviously, the decade of the 1950s, I mean, and earlier as well, but purging the labor movement of uh, communists and, you know, McCarthyism, you know, the the seats of culture in Hollywood and things like that. So they were they really just destroyed the left first. Um, and then it, it just left that opening for for the situation that we have now, the sort of neoliberal reaction. Um, and until we rebuild that, um, it's always going to be that way. There's just, they're never going to do it ever, 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 ever. You know, they're just not going to do it. So we, th- it's key for us on the left to, which we're starting to see the seeds of it. Like it's, we're nowhere near as powerful as it seems like in our own little cohort, obviously, but we're starting to see the seeds of something um, it's unclear to me how it's going to turn out or where it's going to go. I mean, it's like what Rick Wolf said, you just got to keep trying and keep going. There's never stop. You just got to hope that, you know, the work, uh, that work is successful, but like, you know, until we, we do that, that is the, that is our job. It's never going to be their job. They're never going to do it. You know, it's just literally our job to do it. So. No, you're absolutely right. And I think, you know, assuming Biden wins, there will be a, a fantastic opportunity for the left to organize. And again, this is the this is the important part to provide an alternative solution to neoliberalism, right, mm-hmm. to, to provide a solution that counters what Republicans are going to propose. Look, Republicans are going to propose bootstraps. Uh, get it together. You guys are failures. You don't Deficit know what you're doing. Reduction. You just. Deficit reduction. We just need more tax cuts. That's the real problem. Hopefully billionaires will trickle on you at some point. That's, that's what their solution is going to be. And that is a failed policy. It's a failed message, which again opens up the opportunity for a well organized left to provide a better alternative. I think the, the real issue that we, we need to focus on, to be honest with you, is how do we organize effectively and how do we not get distracted by divide and conquer tactics that will be deployed uh, by neoliberals? No, and in those videos I mean, of West Virginia are those videos of West Virginia are, are heartbreaking because West Virginia was the, the sort of center of hotbed radicalism and the labor movement uh, for decades. And West Virginia was voted Democrat up until not that long ago. I mean, I mean, Joe Manchin's still there. I mean, he's kind of like a a, a, a sort of uh, inertia from that time, you know, uh, but, uh, West, West Virginia used to vote Democrat and, and used to be sort of a radical left like population. And it's just been completely destroyed. I mean, that legacy is just completely destroyed, ignored. Um, and, and you get what, what happens in the wake of that is what was what we saw there. Just people just completely off the, you know, out of the system, completely, um, 
beaten down, alienated, um, with no means to um, exercise power in any meaningful way. I mean, it's just it's 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 horrible. It's horrible. It is. You know, I didn't know this until recently, but um, do you know where the uh, term rednecks comes from? No, actually, I don't. It actually comes from West Virginia, but not for the reasons that, um, you know, you would think. It's because when workers would strike in West Virginia, they would wear um, red handkerchiefs like around their necks. And so they were referred to as rednecks. And I didn't know that. I I learned about it, um, you know, through what was that candidate's name? There was a candidate who was running in West Virginia who was incredibly strong in his rhetoric. Paula Jean Swearingen? No, it wasn't Paula Jean. I'm forgetting right now. I apologize. I'll remember. But, um, you know, he said it during his campaigning and I was like, oh, yeah, that's Rick Ojeda. Strong. Yeah. Yes. 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 Richard Ojeda. Yeah. Yeah. So I love look, I disagree with him on a few issues, but um, his style of speaking appeals to me. I'll Mm. just leave it there. I, you know, the, the strength in his convictions, I think, is uh, something we don't see from many Democrats these days. Yeah. So um, do we have our guest with us? I think we do. Yes, we do. Oh, nice. OK. Um, so uh, let's let's do it. Let's talk let's to our wonderful guest today. Um, Adolph Reed joins us uh, to discuss lots of issues, including this upcoming election. Um, thank you for joining yeah, it us. Is. So I was listening to your interview on uh, Useful Idiots, and I really liked it, um, especially because you talked a little bit about, you know, some of the some of the ways that, uh, you know, working Americans are covered in the corporate media and how uh, like the disdain toward working Americans is, is pretty obvious and how they share that disdain about working Americans with no problem. And then immediately jump to kind of these divide and conquer tactics uh, that avoid, you know, the material conditions of the majority of Americans uh, while focusing on some of the identity stuff that they think will help Democrats win and beat Donald Trump. Can you elaborate on that a little bit? Uh, Yeah, I think so. Um, uh, To be honest, I can't quite quite, quite recall the useful idiots thing, but... um, But, but, well, really, like, I mean, I've known for a long time, because I've been around and seen it for a long time, that um, that going back at least to um, the Nixon administration, um, when uh, um, um, Nixon tried to depict the working class uh, through a cultural stereotype, right? Um, Conservative, white guys, not much education, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and, but then with with Reagan, um, this mythology of what the working class is or, or of who the working class is um, got um, kicked into high gear and uh, and Democrats or the emerging, uh, you know, neoliberal Democrats took on the same um, notion, right? right? The same um, idea of what the working class is. And the symbolic image was, 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 was Joe Sixpack, right? And the Joe Sixpack was, was a stereotype of, of a willfully ignorant, um, bigoted, uh, sexist, racist guy. No worries. Yeah, no, I haven't heard one of those in a while. Yeah, no, I know. It's got a life of its own, too. 
Uh, yeah, but anyway. Uh, all right, it should be done now. Yes, okay, pardon me. Um, but the, the um, um, so, so the working class through a cultural of the reversal, right, got depicted as a bastion of every kind of conservatism you can possibly imagine, because the only kind of conservatism anybody wanted to talk about anyway was social conservatism, because economic conservatism by Reagan's first first term was pretty much hegemonic already. I mean, I've always said that, or I've said this since 1980 anyway, that Jimmy Carter was basically the warm-up act for Reagan. Uh, And we've been... Um, and from that perspective, um, a financial sector driven of the understanding of economic policy has been dominant, at least since the Carter administration. And if you sort of tease it back a little bit, you can see um, you can trace the zygote back to the Kennedy administration, because that's when um, uh, um, the center or the central focus of economic policy shifted entirely to currency or to maintaining currency stability. And paying no, no no attention whatsoever to employment, except in the way that 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 the Kennedy Keynesian economists uh, were were able or, or redefined full employment to match whatever the level of employment uh, of unemployment that there was at the moment, which was clever. But um, but uh, I've I've known for a long time the role that the social sciences played in the U.S. Uh, after World War II in sort of squeezing class out of public discourse and out of social imagination. And especially uh, any notion of class was rooted in a political economy. Uh, but it, it's really only because, of course, we're working on this book I've been working on for too long now that I've come to see just how central um, social science and what would now be called public intellectual uh, opinion shaping was in uh, – uh, transforming class from a category rooted in political economy to a category that's rooted in culture. And then you get to define the working class autologically, right, by being white, male, ethnic, Catholic, backward, et cetera, et cetera. So, like, this is everybody's trope now, right? Um, um, and it's probably the trope of far, far too many of our colleagues on the left, right, like in one way or another. So in that sense, so, so, so one of the challenges facing us now, and this is one of Bernie Sanders' principal or, or great accomplishments, was uh, to put the idea of uh, class politics rooted in, in political economy and, and in concerns of economic inequality uh, back, back into public discussion and, and public discourse. And of course, Bernie couldn't have done it if the objective conditions hadn't made it possible to do it, right? Or, I mean, necessary to do it. I mean, if we think back um, to, to the Great Recession, uh, um, I recall, I think it was CPR, maybe, who uh, did a report a year and a half down the road, had found that uh, within a year, um, the, the top 20% of income earners had pretty much gotten back everything they'd lost, right? and everybody else uh, has has recovered since. Th- things have gotten worse and worse and worse and worse. And I just put this on the table, uh, which goes beyond like the purview of the question, uh, I guess. But uh, hmm. not at all. That, um, we 
well, when we look, like, I mean, not just in the U.S., right, but in um, the fate of the so-called pink tide governments in Latin America, um, what's happened in Greece, India, Hungary, Poland, um, you, know, you know, I tossed in Boris Johnson in the U.K. And elsewhere, one, one possibility for us to uh, consider seriously is that it may well be that uh, you know, neoliberalism is coming close to exhausting its capacities to, to deliver enough stuff to enough people in any one of these societies um, to be able to sustain its legitimacy as a nominally democratic order now, right? And if so, what, what that means, what, what that could well, well mean is that there are only two ways forward. Um, one is in the direction of authoritarian neoliberalism, right? Because, uh, frankly, uh, nominal, I mean, democratic institutions has you know, never really been the fun part of neoliberalism for the ruling class anyway. <laughs> um, and, and the other direction is, is, is stepping off toward some, some kind of social democratic-like vision or... or or a commitment to um, to government in the public good, right, and and for and for the public good. Um, and I think the challenge for the left, and yes, I mean, now Biden is whatever Biden is. I mean, the slogan that I came up with uh, right at one point is Biden Harris twenty twenty because sometimes you just you just have to clean the damn bathroom, um, but. <laughs> Um, that's all that's to be expected from that, right? You have a clean, clean, clean bathroom. The, um, the ideal outcome from from this election is that you know we'll we'll have to fight fight against them for four years, right? Um, you know, yeah. get something else. And and frankly, the great danger of the Biden Harris administration, as I see it, is that they won't address anything. They'll they'll paper over the contradictions, like in the same way that the Obama administration did. Um, and four years or, or eight years down the road, we'll, we'll find ourselves you know, up against a more competent and serious um, Trump. Yeah. But, but then that leads to like a discussion of, of what, what, what the left's mission is and how we need to think about what, what that mission is. And maybe we can talk about that too. Uh, no, absolutely. Not too long. No, 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 not at all. Um, I want to. I want to talk about because I think this is an important thing for the left to understand. I want to. I want to ask you about the the racial wealth gap. You know, which is a very cited uh, statistic. It's constantly right. cited. I mean, that white families make something like thirteen times more than black families on average. I mean, I saw Matt Bruning at the People's Policy Project put out a post which he he talked about it. If you if you remove the top ten percent of earners from the white right cohort and you remove the top 10% of earners from the black cohort, the 90%, the bottom 90% of both more or less make the same. There's still a little bit, but it's more or less the same that the racial wealth gap is really driven by the top 10% of earners. Um, And it just, it strikes me as like maybe one of the key statistics that, that, that reinforces what you're talking about of how um, identities paper over class differences. Oh yeah. I think that's absolutely correct. Uh, And, and I mean, it's also worth noting uh, um, Robert Manduka found that um, the that 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 
that, that the key to explaining uh, the racial wealth gap is the racial income gap. Right. Uh, so, uh, I mean, that has other implications, right? Uh, and, 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 and in fact, the reason that, that the income gap hasn't changed uh, much over the last half century is that uh, I, I mean, although blacks, blacks of the income has increased across the board right, right over that period, um, it's the intensifying pattern of, of income inequality overall, right? That 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 has kept uh, uh, that has kept the overall racial uh, uh, sorry the overall racial income gap pretty much stagnant, right? So that the concentration of wealth and income at the top, right, at the very top, and there are a handful of black people at close to the very top, and uh, you know a lot more than there were, and this is maybe uh, the more important fact, uh, uh, um, probably four times more or 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 more. Um, you know, rich black people basically that, than that than there were in 1968. But the thing is, I mean, this is the thing for me, right? Uh, uh, I've been trying to figure out uh, uh, because even the most you know cursory and casual observation as you walk around the streets um, shows that um, black Amer- or class and income uh, I mean, differentiation among black Americans have increased. Uh, you know, significantly over the last um, 50 years, right? So what's what's the point in, uh, uh, you know, apart from a certain kind of emotional satisfaction, what's the point in insisting that that's not true, right? In in, in insisting that, um, that black American status in the society is what, what it was under Jim Crow or what, what it was under slavery, Right. And I think I'm starting to get a sense sense of an explanation, uh, and and I, um, I have to thank um, the um, corporate um, rush to uh, show how woke they are. Right after uh, you know the judge Floyd and Breonna Taylor murder, and and the two billion dollars that such great friends of human of human equality and justice as Jeff Bezos and and, uh, and Walmart, right, have pumped pumped into Black Lives Matter organizations or or into 501c3s and NGOs and the like. And it's that the what we understand to be well, what my son and I and others have 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 been calling openly like a race reductionist um, political agenda and and understanding the needs of Black Americans. Which, among other things, uh, supports the contention that programs aimed at reducing um, economic inequality across the board don't, don't do anything for black people. Uh, the silent statement there is that they don't do anything for rich black people or for upwardly mobile black people or don't do that much for the professional managerial strata. Right? Uh, and so what we've come to now is, um, it, it is a kind of funny combination of um, a black or a nominal black political agenda. And by the way, like nobody ever asks who who sets the black political agenda, right? Or where it comes from, or, um, who devises it or whatever. Um, but a black political agenda that is skewed, uh, the more it looks like concrete policies or practices, uh, the more clearly it's skewed 
for the interests of, of, of the entrepreneurial and um, investment classes and people who vie to be professional re- representatives of, uh, of the racial voice, or as I call uh, the professional racial voices. Uh, and and what what's offered, what what what's on offer as an alternative to support for a social democratic program of redistribution, which 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 by the way was what was a consensual center of gravity of you know black American politics from like the mid '30s through through the '60s, uh, but now uh, you know, activists even uh, you reject that. And claim that it doesn't do anything to black people because they've committed, by and large, to racializing the working class, right, as a white, but what white phenomenon, right? So every time Bernie Sanders made some appeal to the working class, or I mean anybody else does, they, they get blasted for being racist because somehow working class doesn't include black people. But mm-hmm. but what black people get, right, or or the apparent populist. A bone for the you know black black masses um, is um, the criminal justice stuff, right? Which also rests on um, a myth, right? Like a mythical notion that any black person is as likely as any other black person to be shot down by by cops or be treated uh, harshly or brutalized or whatever. Um, so that's like an abstract. Um, I, I, I mean, I'm not clear if I'm being clear here, but 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 but, but the mask agenda is, is this mm. abstract, and that we all suffer the same from yeah of your brutality and mass incarceration. Um, and I'll, I'll and I'll digress off my digression for 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 a second. I did a justice uh, New Democrats panel um, a few months ago, and what one of the candidates on it. Uh, I mean, one was a really impressive woman like from St. St. Louis who actually won. I'm blocking her name now. She's also a standard surrogate. But one was this guy from Brooklyn who took issue with with my suggestion that that class differentiation has occurred among black Americans. And his mm. argument was that he can't recognize uh, any such thing as class differences among black people because when uh, when he goes to his front door, he's just as likely to be shot by the cops as any other black person. So I thought, okay, so this is the ideological work that that line is doing. And it works to sort of perfume, what works as a kind of populist perfume, perfume on, on the big um, foundation money, corporate money, backdoor Dem- Dem- Wall Street money that, that, that the movement's actually uh, um driving or is being driven by uh, or or is driving forward. But let me say one more thing about that, right? I mean, just that, because um, I've been thinking a, a lot about this too, and it came up again um, a, a day or two ago. We all are inclined to assume for a variety of reasons that um, street action um, or uh, or uh, the militant proclamations from from you know, black or brown people who present themselves as activists or as, or, 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 or as moral voices are intrinsically left, right? And that they're intrinsically compatible with, if not consistent with, um, 
um, um, a larger left program. And one of the reasons that it makes, or it's understandable that people make that presumption, is that from the mid-30s through the mid-60s or the 70s even, um, the, the two norms that operated in black politics that the political scientist Preston Smith calls uh, um, the ideal of, of the racial democracy and the ideal of social democracy. They coexisted, converged, um, were in conflict in uh, discrete instances. It was also the case that segment of the society, uh, apart from black, black Americans, that was most dependably supportive of of a black political agenda or an agenda for, uh, of an racial justice were people on the left. So they coexisted. But just because they coexisted doesn't mean that they're intrinsically uh, you know, the same or even compatible, right? The, the uh, ideal, right, of the norm of r- racial democracy is a society um, that you know, operates off the basis of um, strict equality of opportunity, right, or radical equality of opportunity, that, 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 that um, where, where the goal is to remove all the fetters, um, all of the arbitrary or, or bigoted fetters on blacks or, or other non-whites being able to um, pursue equality of opportunity on the same basis as everybody else in the society. Uh, that doesn't necessarily um, re- require a commitment to to um, social uh, to, to um, a so- social democratic uh, program or or like even any uh, commitment to a notion of any sort of notion of of, of, of racially equal- sorry of economic equality across the board. And I think we got a problem now um, that so many people are accustomed. Uh, to presuming that what comes out of um, the precincts of a militant black voice is necessarily compatible with a left program, but it's not right. Like it doesn't have to be. I mean, um, I've sometimes had had people say to me, "Well, I'm, why why are you so harsh on people who are fundamentally our allies?" And and my response is always. I wouldn't be harsh if I thought they were our allies, but my point is that they're not. <laughs> yeah. No. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. So question about that, because, you know, when you take a step back and you look at how certain, let's say congressional races uh, play out specifically right. congressional races where you have, um, you know, a socialist uh, candidate, someone further to the left challenging a, an incumbent Democrat, it's incredible how quickly that race will devolve into accusations of racism, sexism, yeah. anti-Semitism, whatever. I mean, pick your poison uh, right. against the challenger, right? The the, the progressive right. or the the leftist who's challenging the incumbent Democrat. Right. And it, it, if you're following it, it just comes off as incredibly disingenuous. It comes off as um, nothing more as a way to smear someone who's coming forward with a different set of economic policies that right. would certainly improve the lives of everyone across the board, regardless of, um, you know, gender, sex, all of that stuff, um, uh, race. But it's amazing how quickly 
you know, at least some portion of the left falls for that narrative. Mm-hmm. And it, I think that that's part of the reason why we've had difficulty in in winning, to be quite honest what? with you. Um, and so do you see a more effective strategy to mitigate that? Yeah, yeah, I see a couple of things. Um, first, first um, I, I'm, I'm going to say that I'm offended that you um, – Said and all those other things, and then just tossed race, race in there with them. No, no, I'm joking. But, but. <laughs> no, believe me, I know I you're like, joking. Damn, we're about right. to make headlines. Party who would pull that move, though, right? I mean, uh, um, ideally, you'd know better than to ask him. But, um, well, yeah. Well, look. I mean, first point is that all politics in a class society is the class politics, right? So, it all, so the question is, is not whether or not, um, you know, say Black Lives Matter is a class politics or whatever we think of as race radicalism uh, it is a class politics. That's foregone because you're in a class society. Uh, the question is, which, which class does this politics connect with and which class is interest? Um, does this politics I mean, uh, connect with? Um, when, well, when I was still teaching at Yale, this was like in the late 80s, and um, I have some of my black colleagues would say things to me like, well, Adolf, you have to understand that there's more to life than uh, the economics, right? And, you know, healthcare and stuff like that. And, and I would think, because I was still like too genteel or too nice a guy or too chicken shit or whatever, to say, yeah, well, that's kind of easy for you to say, isn't it? Because you're an Ivy League professor and you know all this stuff, right? Uh, and, and it's still kind of like that, right? I mean, um, yeah. what well, I mean, even the more radical sound, sounding demands like abolish or, I mean, defund the police, uh, you know, polls have shown consistently, uh, and you wouldn't even need the polls if you spent any time hanging out of, like in working class black communities. Black people don't want to abolish the police, right? They want the police to come well, when they need them to come. Well, my son and I have been joking that, that uh, I mean, nobody with, um, with, with a car car and a TV set wants to abolish the police. That's just a fact of life, right? Um, mm-hmm. Especially in a highly uh, stratified society with, with a lot of poor people in it. But, um, but the bigger problem, they just, I think, they, well, they just want the police to actually do what they're supposed to do and yeah, right, protecting and serving them. Yes. Right. Yeah. Right. right exactly. Uh, so, but, um, but I think that um, the problem is that um, what we, that, that the moves that you talk about, right. Are um, uh, the red baiting. Right. And, and it's funny how they've turned that they've like, Managed uh, simultaneously, like to uh, you know, to invert race baiting, right? Uh, to point it back, back, back the other way, uh, and to make it the same thing as red baiting, right? But, but that's what the deal is. And and after we saw, you know, not just the black political establishment, but the black corporate media um, establishment, and even the black activist like establishment, if you want to talk about it, right? About such a thing, like the people perform the Potemkin politics of, 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 of you know, speaking for uh, you know, black masses uh, in, in very articulate ways, typically on MSNBC, uh, the, uh, the, the way that they all immediately, right? I mean, what went after Sanders? 
um, should say something about the class character of that politics. Now, I know that part of it is that their main interest, right, is for, and I think this is true of the reparations thing too, and, I, and, and I'll explain that in a second as well. Their real political interest is to make certain that all discussions of, of, of the interest of black Americans in, in political life be understood through the rubric of race. Why? Because, the, uh, because this is a stratum that's largely people who are to one degree or another uh, enmeshed in, in, in a race relations industry. And they don't work for our side. I mean, just like from uh, um, you know the role of racial spokesperson, right? Since since uh, you know, Booker T. Washington first crafted it, right, in 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 late eighteen nineties, was never addressed laterally, right, uh, to uh, to an audience of working class black people. It was always addressed to the ruling class, and was always linked. To, uh, to an objective of sort of holding the franchise of, 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 of uh, defining what, what black Americans' interests are. And that's a reason as well that the brief, briefs that explain the roots or foundations of um, current inequality that appears in, in the form or, 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 or even worse, can made to can be made to appear in the form of racial disparities. Uh, um, where, where where do we go to get the explanations? We go to Jim Crow. Uh, you know, we go to um, you know, some discriminatory facets of the New Deal. Uh, we go to slavery. We go to the to um, the um, the dystopian. Shangri-La of Afro-pessimism, right? Where like not, not, where, uh, you know, nothing has ever changed, and, and 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 black people are suppressed by by ontological uh, anti-blackness. That that insistence on um, maintaining race as the sole frame of reference for talking about any claims that are to be made by or or on behalf of black people to the state or 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 other uh, governing institutions is by definition threatened by a politics that says, "Look, let's let's look at what all working people share, and 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 let's try to come together around um, you know, the solidarities that we share, right? Uh, that we have common. Build build the solidarities on the basis of of common problems." And then, to whatever extent you need to have like a, a racial diversity training, you can have it uh, from on the basis of that solidarity. But hmm. that's not the point because the point isn't to change the society, right? Uh, the point is, and like this is true true of all of the disparitarian stuff that, and maybe this is something I should have said at the very from from the very outset that what we've got is a difference between. Uh, a demand that we focus exclusively on on inequalities that are produced within capitalism, and not at all on those inequalities that are produced by capitalism. And mm. to me, um, you know, that's like a market between left and not left. I mean, I'm old school certainly in that sense, but but that's kind of what it comes 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 down to. And and the point I was going to make 
uh, or, or how is going to drag the reparations thing thing again to this point? I mean, going back to when um, uh, uh, when when it came out of the crypt again, right around the turn 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 of the century, I I'd spent a month out of the country seeing family elsewhere, and and hadn't had news here, and got back, and like all of a sudden, it was like this rhetoric that I knew from um, soapbox uh, 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 orators, right? like in, in in Harlem or whatever, uh, or on the south side of Chicago, like is all of a sudden uh, a big serious issue and law professors are involved in it right? and so forth and so on. And in sort of talking to colleagues and former comrades and stuff who were into that stuff, it became clear to me that the whole point, like what's attractive about it, um, uh, 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 it's kind of something different for the lawyers because this is just the kind of stuff that they do. But what's attractive about it is that it demands that we talk about inequalities and, and injustices that affect black people specifically in, in language of race. And, you know, some of the older hands who had come out of black power and the new communist movement or whatever, uh, you know, would ultimately admit that, right? So it's not about, and the idea even for the radicals, right? I mean, not the tin horns, but the radicals um, idea was that you push reparations in, 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 in part to show that black people can never attain liberation, whatever that is, in, in, in the United States. So, but okay. I'll be quiet now. No, no, not at all. Well, I, you know, I'm curious. I want to ask about um, South Carolina, which is a state I know you're very familiar with, um, because South Carolina was really the, the 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 place where Bernie Sanders' momentum was really halted um, mm-hmm. in the Democratic primary, and the reaction, the gleeful reaction from the sort of establishment liberals, painted right. South Carolina and black voters as some sort of like mystical, metaphysical thing. Right. Right. But I, I do want to ask about the, the the struggles of not just Bernie, but other kind of insurgent candidates have had with black voters. I just want to read really quickly from Matt Carp's piece about uh, Bernie Sanders campaign. He said, you know, this is not limited to Bernie. He says in the 2015 Chicago mayoral election, Rem Emanuel beat Chuy Garcia with huge margins among black voters. The same pattern was visible in gubernatorial races in Virginia, New Jersey, Michigan, and New York, where blacks, right. oh, black voters overwhelmingly backed, backed Ralph Northam, Phil Murphy, uh, Gretchen Whitmore, and Andrew Cuomo against progressive outsiders. Um, in last year's r- uh, race for Queens District Attorney, Melinda Katz barely edged past Tiffany Caban with strong support of black voters in Southeast Queens. So there seems to be a sort of durable pattern, especially amongst older black voters. I mean, we saw earlier that even some young young black voters are actually uh, breaking for Trump. But what what is going on there? What why the struggle um, for left wing insurgent candidates, whether they be black against white establishmentarians? Um, why why are they struggling with black voters? Well, I mean, like in a way, and and and, and regarding uh, South Carolina in particular, um, like. Comrade and colleague uh, Willie Leggett and and I and uh, Cedric Johnson twice have 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 uh, tried to tackle this uh, issue in print, like in Common Dreams and 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 Jacobin and and Nonsite. But um, the the first order uh, uh, explanation is pretty simple, right? That um, most people don't think of electoral politics. Uh, and certainly not, not in the last half 
half half century or last 40 years, let's say. Don't don't think of electoral politics as the domain for um, expressing their political aspiration, right? And it makes sense that they don't because it hasn't been right. It's 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 it it it's it's been uh, you know if not a clubhouse um, domain, it, it's it's been a domain where candidates haven't offered big ideas or big promises or really tried tried to mobilize anything, right? Um, so, so to go back to, uh, you know, South, to South Carolina primary 2020, yeah, I mean, we were working down there, um, and, um, by the, and between the beginning of December and primary, we actually got more than 18,000 South Carolinians, mainly black, mainly working class to sign pledge cards saying that they didn't want to vote for anybody who didn't support Medicare for all. Well, then, then obviously a bunch of them voted for Clyburn, and the reasons that 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 apparent anomaly, right, um, appeared, is that people are incorporated into, or or I mean, those who vote and 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 then you participate in electoral politics are by and large incorporated into sort of business as usual network, right? That, that's who turns up the vote. And, and, and I think, um, I think leftists have uh, you know, operated with a couple of um, misconceptions about the electoral realm. Um, one, one is um, like, uh, uh, one, one, one is that you can build a movement through um, electoral candidacies. And I've, Never believed that Bernie was did a Herculean job of trying to use the election campaign to to help um, you know to stimulate um, a movement building organizing effort, and that you know was successful. I think it was very successful. That's why I just got so irritated with all with, with all the smart ass lefties trying, trying to come up with a novel explanation about why Bernie lost. Bernie was never going to win, right? I mean, who 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 with serious politics, right? Except for at most, maybe you know, fifteen minutes, like between or you know, after the Nevada prime or caucuses, thought that Bernie could really win the Democratic nomination and be elected president. He might have had a better chance to be elected president if he won, if he won the nomination. But nobody really thought he was going to win the nomination. And people who who did, well, I'm sorry, but I got some beachfront property. I want to tell you. Um, so, but the big news, right, was that in, in at least 20 consecutive primaries, uh, a majority of Democratic voters, including in, in South Carolina, uh, expressed their preference for Medicare for all. That was hmm. something we could pull on, right? And that's where the organizing had, had, had to happen. Um, and we've been sort of complaining and grousing and feeling, uh, uh, held, held, uh, you know, held back since the pandemic started because um, we've got we've still got a you know, field operation going in South Carolina that's all on TV now and and that gets to the other point right uh, that the thing well one of the core problems with, with the left and I trace this back to, to to the new left even but the notion that all we need to do is get the right ideas 
and a properly charismatic person uh, and some earnest volunteers. And we can use the election or use the election campaigns to knock the shackles off people's eyes to uh, you know, overcome four, four decades of hegemonic fascism, basically, right? And, 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 and insistent, um, and, 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 an environment that insistently sort of down your aspirations, right? I mean, even, well, as you think about, um, um, you know, the 2020 primaries, right? Um, Obudge and the rest of the Cretans on the stage and Biden and, and, and after a while, even Warren, um, well, well, unless we're one, but um, but we're all about telling people that it's irresponsible to want anything, right? And that's what's been coming from the Democrats at least since Clinton, right? Or going back to '85 to the founding of the DLC. That's been the whole point, right? And that doesn't change, right? People become accustomed to thinking about politics in in a domain that's separate from stuff you'd like to see happen, right? I mean, it's unfortunate, but, but, but I think there's a lot of evidence to, to, uh, uh, to, to support that. So, so the problem is, though, that to the extent that, that that's how we proceed and want to have and indulge the fantasy that maybe, I mean, I could I kick this off, I don't know what, the WTO, whatever, that something can happen, right? Some big intervention can come and and uh, reshuffle the deck, right, I and mean, reset the playing field, right, um, is just wrong. And I know that a lot of it has, has to do with a sense of urgency, right, um, because, it, because, because things are so bad and getting worse. But the reality is we didn't get into this situation overnight. We're not going to get out of it overnight. And we certainly aren't going to get out of it if we continue to try to treat the movement like it's a frat or a sorority where you've got to prove that you're worthy to be let in. Uh, and worst of all, that that um, that PhD students like Lit Studies are going to be the ones making the determination about what, what the rules are for getting in. We've got to start trying to figure out how to talk to people that, that, that don't already agree with us. Right. And that's where the work has to be. That's where the movement has has to come from, right? Like, like I've always seen seen um, elections or, or 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 seen the electoral realm as the domain for consolidating victories that have been won on the plane of social movement organizing, and that's mm. what we consistently fail to do, right? We've and um, so and and I know this is an unpopular view, but like social media stuff is useful for a lot, but you don't build a movement with it. You can mobilize, right? People who are, yep. uh, who are already part of us, but, but we've got to go out. Like I'll give you an illustration. I mentioned this a couple of times now uh, for, for the Sanders campaign. Uh, um, actually almost exactly a year ago, um, I did a, um, a gig at, um, at the Steelworkers Hall in Georgetown, South Carolina, just, South of Myrtle Beach, about about halfway between there and Charleston, and um, there were a few uh, rank and file white workers there. And one guy is about forty-ish, maybe, uh, worked in the paper mill, um, who um, said that like he liked a lot of the um, of of Sanders's uh, of the Sanders economic program, 
but but he couldn't understand why the Democrats keep getting uh, distracted into the moral issues. So I kind of prodded him a little bit to nail down what he was talking about, and you know, uh, gay gay marriage uh, and and abortion and stuff. So I tried to pluralism thing with him, right? Uh, that look like you, you you can work with people who who uh, believe in different stuff, right? And not much success. But then I said, well, um, but yeah, like I tried to explain, you know, what how other people saw, saw things, right? And then finally, I said to him, look, I mean, which is more important to you, right? That uh, no woman ever be able to have an abortion, or 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 do you have get guaranteed access to healthcare, or that no two same-sex people ever be permitted to marry, or that you 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 can count on a pension and and a dignified retirement? And no, no, I didn't went over right. I stopped in his tracks for a second, but the fact that. I, a, a stranger whom he didn't know from Dick's Hatman, as my grandmother would say, um, could stop him in his tracks for a second, right? I mean, that suggests pretty strongly that somebody who has standing in, in his life and, and, and his environment could eventually move him, right, um, enough that he would, um, you know, uh, that he, he would react to somebody in 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 his cell group or or local or whatever, at advancing um, a reproductive rights uh, pro, uh, um, resolution, in in the same way that I just kind of look, look down at the floor when they when they say the pledge pledge before union, right? Because you under, because what we need to build is the kind of solidarities that ironically the right right built right right after mm-hmm. Gold War, right where so that. Uh, I mean, I remember in the Reagan years, like people would point this out that that, that the Reagan coalition is fundamentally un, unstable because of the two big big wings of it are incompatible. But but they're incompatible unless you've done the work that makes clear to either side that the success of the other side is a precondition for their own success, right? Um, and, and I remember like we had a guy, um, 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 a guy from the Workers Party in. in in, in, in Brazil, come and talk to us when we're getting the Labor Party off, off the ground. And somebody mentioned coalition, and that's the point he made. He said, "No, no, no. You don't want a coalition. You want an alliance. But right? right? you want to have that um, sameness of purpose, right? And right. you don't do that, right? From mobilizing, like you don't get that from rah rah. Like the only way you get that is through working hard to build." Connections based on trust and mutual support uh, among yep. working people who are out there, like in the society, and that just takes takes time. And and it takes time, might- and it takes a lot of work. You know, it takes <laughs> oh, yeah. it takes right. work that uh, goes outside of simply posting something on Twitter or Facebook. Um, oh, and I think we've yeah. seen the you know. The, the lack of effectiveness that comes out of uh, trying to mobilize people through social media. And I think people are becoming a little more savvy about that, which, you know, I'm at least grateful for. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. Uh, thank you so much for taking the time to, to yeah. you know, oh, oh, yeah, no, reference. No. Yeah. This was such a great conversation and I'm sorry. What was that? Well, I just said, thanks for having me. 
Of course, course. it's our pleasure. And uh, hopefully um, you'll come back again. I mean, there's still so much to, um, you know, talk about and, you know, we only have so much time, but it's always a pleasure to hear from you. Um, So take care and hopefully we'll talk soon. Yep. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Thank you. Man, Anna, in the last week. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, go ahead. I was just going to say, let's take like a one minute break and uh, we'll be right back with our salt segment. We're going to talk about Jeremy Corbyn. Uh, You guys don't want to miss it. We'll be back. expected you to come back dressed you know in costume uh you know oh no i mean i'm, I'm not i'm not that fun um i needed to like eat something really quick because i was like getting super lightheaded um so mm. that's what i did i like shoved some food in my mouth and I'm ready to go let's do it nice well i just gotta say in the last week i've spoken to richard wolf noam chomsky and now adolf reed i mean just the, the trifecta of the old-timer legends who I very much enjoy talking to because I just feel like they've been fighting the war for so long and have survived the sort of wilderness of of the 80s, 90s, and early 2000s to come to this moment now with just armed with all that kind of experience and perspective that I think is invaluable and people should uh, disdain at their own peril, um, I would say. Uh, so I'm just very happy. And the fact that I got to talk to him dressed as a chicken um, is... is <laughs> really amazing. (laughs) Yeah, it is pretty amazing. Um, and I totally agree with you and I, you know, I would definitely add, um, Bernie Sanders to that list. Uh, because when I think of someone who has fought for, uh, you know, working people, his entire professional career, I like think of Bernie Sanders. And the thing that always shocks me, not shocks me, but impresses me about people like Sanders is that it's hard to, you know, put up that relentless fight. Um, it's hard to not get discouraged and Mm -hmm. find yourself in despair, but he keeps fighting. And so, you know, some of the people, um, who have been highly critical of, uh, Bernie because he's been, uh, he endorsed Biden, of course, and is encouraging people to vote for him. I just, I just think that that, um, anger is misdirected, that criticism is misdirected and, um, it just totally ignores everything that he's fought for and continues to fight for, even though he's not, um, you know, the nominee. Yeah. No, I mean, it's, he's earned a certain amount of credit with me, you know, because he's been doing it for, for so long that, you know, and you lose most of the time you lose 
the vast 99% of the time, if you're on the left, you lose. Um, and at least certainly in the last several decades. So to continue fighting is just so admirable. And if you're, you know, uh, in a different country and uh, you win, um, the United States will make sure that you're ousted yes. <laughs> through coups and things like that. So it's just it's important to to really consider what we're up against. Uh, but that shouldn't discourage us. I think it, it empowers you to know who your enemies are. And um, it also empowers you to learn from history, which is. You know, what I loved about Michael Brooks's show, um, The Michael Brooks Show, which still exists, and you guys should still watch it, um, but he did such a great job in high, like focusing carefully on what has worked for the left mm. in other countries and, you know, trying to encourage people to implement those types of strategies. Yeah. Um, so history is your friend. Yes. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. Anyway. Well, another one of these old timers, um, legends, people who've dedicated their lives to fighting injustice, to making a better world, is Jeremy Corbyn. And this week, we got some Jeremy Corbyn news in that the new leader of the Labour Party, Keir Starmer, announced that he was being suspended from the Labour Party, the party who he has been a member of basically his entire adult life. Um, and I want to just play a clip of uh, Keir Starmer's justification for it. It is supposedly has to do with Jeremy Corbyn's rabid anti-Semitism. Kale, play the clip. Now, you described yesterday as a day of shame for the Labour Party, but it seems with the suspension of Jeremy Corbyn, that's been somewhat of a, of a distraction. Is there a risk here that actually by doing this, by this action happening, then that it's not the focus on the key issue that should be being looked at, which is tackling anti-Semitism? Well, let me just set out what I had hoped would happen yesterday because... Um, the findings were shameful and um, I thought it was absolutely right to accept the findings in full, um, to accept the recommendations in full and be absolutely committed to carrying out those recommendations with the Commission um, and to apologise for the hurt and grief that have been caused to our Jewish communities, our Jewish members and supporters. It's, I mean, the smarminess of this guy, like, honestly makes me so angry because it has been proven time and time again. And it was obvious, I didn't even need proof, you know, like, I didn't even need the proof to understand what was going on, that this was a completely manufactured and fake controversy. Everything about it was completely fake. But it has been proven time and again beyond any reasonable doubt. I mean, Ronan Burtonshaw friend of the show and Jacobin editor um, and editor of Tribune in the UK um, also tackled this uh, today because he in, in, in the wake of this when he said that, you know, uh, Jeremy Corbyn said that the scale of the problem was dramatically overstated by, for political reasons by our opponents inside and outside of the party, as well as by much of the media. This is true. I mean, if you followed that race at all, this was like the issue dominating the race. Um, this is undoubtedly the case. But as we know from the leaked report, so there was a report from inside the Labour Party that was leaked. Individual complainants were responsible in some instances for thousands of complaints, the vast majority of which were unfounded. Even MPs in some cases made statements relating to the number of cases that could not be substantiated. Margaret Hodge, for instance, said she had made 100 anti-Semitism complaints to the party. It later transpired that 80 of these related to people with no connection whatsoever to labor. That is to say, they aren't even members, let alone office holders or anyone the EHRC would find the party legally responsible for. And it's just, it's, it, 
it was so obvious that they were just like, you know, they tried everything at Corbin. They tried like the Bernie bro attack on him. They tried like the sexism attack on him. It didn't really stick. And for whatever reason, the anti-Semitism one sort of stuck. And it, I'm not saying that this was like the, the reason why Corbin lost the campaign, although it undoubtedly was a massive distraction um, from the real issues. You know, like he was always forced to talk about it, always forced to answer questions about it. And what we now know is that this was a deliberate strategy from inside the Labor Party by mm-hmm. the enemies to his right, sort of the like what we would call here establishment Democrats, your near attendants of the world, your you know Nancy Pelosi's of the world. Um, inside the Labor Party, they were actively trying to undermine their own party because they did not like the leadership of Jeremy Corbyn. They did not like the direction that the party was heading, the leftward direction of the party. And we actually got yeah, Nando. Yeah. Go ahead. Oh, sorry to interrupt no, no, go you, ahead, go ahead, but go ahead. I, I'm glad that you, I, I'm glad that you mentioned that because in one of the first uh, episodes of Weekends, we had Aaron Bastani on to discuss that, uh, to discuss uh, you know the internal communications in the Labor Party and how they were literally conspiring to. Uh, it, eject uh, Jeremy Corbyn from the party uh, or or this is before um, the elections happened to yeah. essentially sabotage his election. Um, so they have no they have no credibility here. Right. Yeah. I mean, people are going to fall for this narrative anyway, which is incredibly frustrating. It's very similar. I mean, there are parallels to, to what we see again in the United States when you have progressive challengers to incumbent Democrats, corporate Democrats. Uh, and, and like, for me, it's it's so obvious. I just want to get to the point where there's a discussion about how to strategically dissuade, you know, allies from falling for narratives like this. Well, because it, it's you like anyway, go ahead. No, I mean, you're, you're right. I mean, I think that we just have to say that the burden of proof for any of these accusations. I mean, remember the Alex Morse thing, you know, like that. And so yes, many people yes. on the left went along with that. You know, just like an accusation is good enough. Like, I mean, this is what the problem was with like the whole narrative around like, for example, like believe women, you know, like it's like it it just hands them a weapon that they can use. Like anyone can just like make an accusation. And then especially if it's directed in a leftward (laughs) direction and it and it'll uh, it'll stick. Yeah, and and it'll stick. Yeah. Um, But like, you know, it's just it's it's. It's just so obvious what happens and it, it happens time and time again. And there's always been the suspicion that these people would rather lose while still remaining in power within their own institution. It's called like the ironclad law, like the iron law of institutions or something like that. Is that the, the leaders within the institution would rather their institution fail, but their leadership positions within that institution maintained than their leadership positions in the institutions removed what the institution succeeding, right? So, like, for example, I, I firmly believe that were it not for the coronavirus pandemic, Biden would probably lose in a straight fight with Trump. Like, without the economic collapse and the coronavirus pandemic that 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 is, like, un- under God, sorry, I just hit something, that is, that is underneath it all, I'm pretty sure uh, Biden loses to Trump. But, um, so, but, but they, but they did everything possible to elect this man um, while kneecapping Bernie Sanders. And the same thing was happening with labor, except with labor, we have actual text messages <laughs> amongst between these people conspiring to sabotage their own party, to lose seats to the Tories, they're like the equivalent of the Republicans in the UK, so that they could 
oust Jeremy Corbyn. I just want to read a text exchange. Kale, if you want to throw it up on the screen. Um, it, it's like Julie Lawrence, then director of the general secretary's office, like a big wig in labor. She says, I may be jumping the gun here. And JC is a proud, Jeremy Corbyn is a proud and selfish man with a team to match. But if we lose these elections, Stoke and Copeland, we as in labor, we could have another leadership election. We could, we should set up some, uh, at some stage, a discrete working group to go over rules, timetable scenarios, and staff servicing to the process just so we're prepared, like Operation Cake. And then the executive director of labor goes, hope. You know, like they're hoping to lose seats. You know, like they're just openly talking about it. It's crazy to me. You know, like it, it's just, and the conversation it's goes insane. on. You should, you should look up the the, the leaked uh, report um, on like labor's uh, internal workings to sabotage uh, Jeremy Corbyn. But it's just it's so infuriating that they weaponize these cynical identity politics. I mean, this is why buying into this kind of identity politics from the left is like it's like a boomerang. You're throwing a boomerang. It's going to swing back around and hit you right in the face. You know, it will always double back and, and hit you. It's always going to it's never going to work. Um so I think you're right. I think that we just need to grow some backbone. We need to grow some, you know, some metal and just understand what's going on. They're going to level this kind of accusation to every single person who challenges power from the left. I mean, this is just definitely 100% true. And also, I think, look, I think part of the reason why uh, people on the left fall for these narratives, even without um, any evidence, like they just buy it part and parcel, uh, you know, there there doesn't need to be it. It's because we know what's going to happen if we're skeptical of the claims, right? If you're skeptical of the claims, then you get attacked, especially if you're a member of the media, of being an enabler of anti-Semitism or racism or sexism or whatever it is. Um, But you're right about the backbone because the people who are, you know, usually using these types of accusations do it in bad faith. They do it because they want to destroy uh, an incredibly popular message that resonates with people, but goes against their own vested interests, right? So let's be aware of who the enemies are. Let's be aware of how disingenuous these accusations are. And the most important part is, let's just wait until we actually see some evidence of what's being claimed. I mean, I remember it happened with Shahid Buttar as well. Yeah. uh, Shahid Buttar. And I was just like, okay. um, It was so obvious what was going on. It's so obvious. You can see coming from a mile away. Are you kidding me? I mean, same with Julia Salazar. I mean, like anyone, everyone's going to just assume, you know, a left-wing challenger, they're going to be accused of some bullshit. That's just, that's just a baseline. We should work from that premise forward. You know, like be skeptical and and wait to see if there's any evidence. If there's no evidence of it, it's just like vague accusations with no substance to it. Then why like needlessly fall victim to these like bad faith arguments that are specifically meant to destroy a movement? Like it's just let's be smarter and don't be afraid when someone just decides that they're going to call you a racist for demanding evidence or uh, anti-Semitic for demanding evidence. We should see evidence. Um, And if there isn't any, then we know it's all bad faith. Yeah. Should we bring Kale on? I mean, I think the people are going to get restless if we don't bring Kale on, you know? I know. People love Kale. Oh, Oh, you're looking extra hot, Kale. You look fantastic, Kale. Just just (laughs) a fading starlet. It's we're almost done with Jacobin YouTube, guys. Yeah. This is this is we're in the Kale, twilight you ready? era. Are you ready for your close up? <laughs> <laughs> Hell yeah. 
<laughs> oh my god this is this is for the jacobin only fans man you kale, cross-dressing kale is that would wow that would i mean you want to rake in some dollars uh that will do it it's me that and headband yeah. where'd you get that headband from it's from a friend <laughs> it's from a lady friend it's from a lady mm, friend kale. <laughs> i think i love, I, I love how i'm like the boring night. one who's not wearing a costume I put this together at like 1 a.m. <laughs> okay, so what were you what doing you with a lady friend at 1 a.m., dude? That's that's past your bedtime. It's watching a movie. <laughs> Speaking of which, yeah, I were. wanted I wanted to ask you two, what is your favorite spooky horror movie? Hmm. I well, know what Anna's gonna say. <laughs> I, I, I thought know. of something. Okay, I thought you thought of something. something? Okay, go. Mm-hmm. What do you got? Um, I like the first Chucky movie. Actually, the I first didn't like Chucky it. movie. Um, wow, that yeah, is the yeah. last. That is the last thing <laughs> I've ever predicted. So the reason why I say that is because um, I was way too young when I saw the first Chucky movie. I think I was like maybe six, and yeah. um, I remember my aunt came over and my mom was distracted and ch- like it came on the TV. Um, so this was bef- like. You know, it was already out in the theaters, it made it to television. And it was the first time I was ever exposed to anything scary. And uh, it gave me nightmares. And mm. now when I go back and I watch it randomly and weirdly, it gives me like fond memories of my childhood. So um, it did its job. It scared me. But now I think about it and I get nostalgic about my childhood because I had a pretty good childhood. So I would say the first Chucky movie. Mm. Good answer. You know, to me, I um, so I I I think that my favorite movie is probably my favorite horror movie is probably The Shining. I actually didn't see it as a kid, or like it was like a kind of one of those to kind of like overlook things for me. Like I saw it as an adult, like way later than I probably should have, and I was like so it was so much better than I had anticipated or even thought it could have been. Anyway, I love The Shining, but the other movie that I think uh, gets forgotten a little bit because at the time it was like a huge phenomenon. But it probably feels a little dated because it was so specific to a certain moment in time was Scream. Do you guys remember how big? Well, That's you don't what, remember, Kale, because you're a kid. That's what Christian but, and, said. Yeah. Do you yeah, remember yeah, how big ahead. Scream was for the people in our yeah. generation? It was everything. 100%. Yeah. And but why? It's, it's actually kind of clever. <laughs> why was it? Because it was kind of like a it was kind of had like a winky kind of knowing thing about like it was like deconstructing uh horror movies and 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 things like that while being a horror movie at the same time you know like the whole like i'll be right back um so i think it's the teens who have already watched in the 80s and the 70s all the slasher films now so they know the tropes yeah 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 so um yeah what about you kale you stole my answer because The Shining is my favorite movie of all time. It's I've mm. I'm one of those nerds. It's that so much better than deep. people realize. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's it's like I mean, it's not like the most perfect movie, but like that's not your favorite movie. No one's favorite movie no. is the most perfect movie. Um no. which is Roger Rabbit. No. Um Roger like, Rabbit is an amazing movie. <laughs> it's a great movie. Um uh, no, but The Shining is my favorite movie and it's just like the all-time best horror movie, but to, okay, so to give a different answer, the most recent uh, horror movie that I thought was phenomenal uh, that I just finally got around to watching is The Brood by David Cronenberg, who, mm. if you're not familiar with Cronenberg, he's just like... I actually someone... just watched A History of Violence like mm. a week ago. for the, yeah. not, not for the first time, but it's a good movie. Yeah, no, he Cronenberg's one of the all-time best. Um, yeah. And 
he's known as like the body uh horror like the gory like it's you know gross body things and and there's obviously there's obviously there's some of that in there but like actually when you watch his movies like it's usually very tasteful or it's like very like it's totally it totally makes sense within the course of the movie um i mean the most disgusting thing is probably in scanners mm. when uh when the head blows up if you're familiar yeah, yeah. but <laughs> yes um in, in a history of violence, uh, uh, Viggo Mortensen does like the thing where you like break, you know, like the like when you're trained to kill someone with your palm and you like mm. put, push their nose. And the, the guy's nose like goes like <laughs> he like basically rips off his nose and you like see he like shows the whole thing. It's pretty, pretty gruesome. Uh, uh, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, I also wanted to ask because it's just kind of just kind of our thing. It's like everyone at Jacket. I don't know. Actually, I don't know about you two, but. Most of the people I know at Jacobin are like massive Simpsons heads. Like we're mm. all obsessed with the Simpsons. Uh, yeah. And and I wanted to ask uh, if you have a favorite. What is your favorite Treehouse of Horror segment? So I do. It's I don't have a favorite. Like I just I have fought. Like I loved simpsons growing up watched every single episode i love the treehouse of horror uh specials for halloween and so i was thinking about this uh before the show and i remembered the one that featured um bill clinton and bob dole and then i looked it up because i wanted to remember exactly uh what happened so uh, it was the episode called citizen kang um treehouse of horror uh uh season eight uh number seven Anyway, so um, there you go. basically, gotta yeah, <laughs> got to cite it. No, because you guys should watch it. It was fun. Um, so um, in the third installment of the 1996 uh, Treehouse episode, which aired a little over a week before the presidential election, the writers took things to there a newly go. audacious level by having the resident Simpsons extraterrestrials, Kang and Kodos, kidnap candidates Bob Dole and Bill Clinton assume their identities and continue their campaign efforts for those who have always suspected politicians were from another planet. This provided cartoon comedy proof. So yeah, I love that episode. It was really good. Well, there's, there's the famous line of, of the two of them as, as the candidates and they reveal themselves as aliens and everyone goes, Oh no, what do we do? And they're like, you can only vote for one of us. There's only two options. Sorry. (laughs) So good. Yeah. Um, I remember the one, the one that like stuck with me the most was the one where Groundskeeper Willie was like Freddy Krueger, like killing you, mm-hmm. killing people in 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 their dreams. Yeah, that was that was probably my my favorite. Um, but yeah, <laughs> the one I come back to the most because it's it genuinely was it was in my favorite trio of horror growing up, which is um, I believe it's season six, which is the one that includes The Shining, of course. Um, but the the segment on the nightmare cafeteria where uh, all of the teachers and the principal, everyone's like they're uh, cooking and feeding all of the students and themselves other students until they start mm. running out of students. Yes. And and there's the moment at the end. Um, well, there's there's two moments. There's when uh, Bart and Lisa go to uh, to uh, to Marge and are like and they're screaming and they're saying. Like the teachers are eating us. Like we need you to do something. And and uh, Marge is like, I didn't raise you two to be like this. Like you go straight up to those teachers and you look them in the eye and you say, "Don't eat me." 
<laughs> like, <laughs> like stand up for yourself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the, and the other part that I, this is the thing I, I come back to all the time, which is at the very end of that segment, um, it's down to just Lisa, Bart, and Milhouse, and they're like standing over a giant blender, and all like the teachers are approaching them, and it's like it's you know what's going to happen. It's like there's no way out, and uh, and I think it's. I forget if it's Bart or Lisa, but one of them says, like, well, I'm sure we'll think of something to get out of this situation. And then Millhouse falls in and, and gets grinded up. And then and then they uh, there's like a moment of, of fear and they say, well, I'm sure nothing bad would happen to the two Simpsons children. And then they two <laughs> fall in. And it's like this this feeling that on the left, I'm sure many people feel this when things couldn't possibly be worse. And you think there's no way that it could get any worse than this. And of course it always does. And the takeaway the the upshot, the positive upshot is that that's what's, that's what it's like being on the left. And you have to condition yourself to that. You're going to fall mm. into the blender and you have to get back up uh, because we can't exit this fight. Like, uh, sorry, I didn't mean to make it all moralistic. The episode rules. No, I love that. <laughs> In fact, like as we're having this conversation, because it's been a long time since I've watched The Simpsons, like I want to go back and watch, you know, all these episodes yeah. that, you know, I was watching as a kid and just kind of interpret them in a different light um, because The Simpsons was incredibly political um, and yeah. it, it definitely went over my head as a child. Um, so I would maybe we do a new segment um, where we like you know, really look into uh, the political messaging in some of these episodes. I could probably uh, get a Simpsons writer on. I have a way. Yeah, the, I love it. Classic era. Let's do it. Um, I could probably yeah. do it. I could. I have a. You know, I have a way in. If Biden wins, I'm sure we'll have some time to kill. There's no rush, yeah. right? No <laughs> rush. Yeah. No, I, weird. It's weird in Spain. You know, like where I'm from, the the two kind of American comedy things that are the most. Like they're so deeply ingrained in the culture. One of them is Woody Allen. Like weirdly, like that, Spaniards yeah. love Woody Allen. Like there's a statue to Woody Allen in Oviedo, like in, in like a parks, like in a park square. Like they love Woody Allen. And the other one is The Simpsons. Like those are the two American mm. comedy things that that Spaniards uh, respond to the most for, for whatever reason. Out of everything. Mm-hmm. I, I remember uh, when I was young, I went to Buenos Aires um, in part to see family because um, as because you're Latinx. Yeah, I'm the Latinx yeah. member of the show. Yeah. And <laughs> and they I mean, <laughs> they adore the Simpsons down there. They love it. The Simpsons are Latinx canon. Yeah, they are. <laughs> they absolutely are. Uh, yeah. There's actually a podcast in Mexico hosted by like the Mexican Homer Simpson, like the guy who does Homer in, in, in Mexico. And it's like one of the biggest podcasts in Mexico. Uh, apparently I haven't listened to it, but uh, yeah. I mean, Latinx I, canon. it's very rare to get content made in America. That's critical of American politics. You know, yeah. I, I wonder if that plays a role in, in its international appeal. Totally. Um, I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah. Well, it's all, it's also worth noting that our Supreme leader, Bhaskar Sunkara, the founder and editor of Jacobin, one of his like big jihads is defending the character of Apu in the public, uh, in the public realm against the vicious attacks 
from uh, from like Hari Kondabalu or whatever. Like he's written, has he written more than one? I know he's written one, at least one piece in the Guardian about it, but he might have written two. There's a whole uh, book in, in the world. a whole book. Yeah. <laughs> but people should read that article. It's actually it is a great piece on like the politics of of culture and um, yeah. And also, Apu is great. He's one of like yeah. the yeah. all-time best TV characters. So, there you go. On that right. note, um, have I been canceled yet? Uh, no, I don't know. You're Latinx. You can't be canceled. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. That's right. Uh, yeah. You provide the diversity we need on the show. Um, anyway, all right. Well, th- I think that does it. It's Halloween. Um, you guys should, you know, I was going to say get out there, have some fun, but. Probably not. Maybe that's a bad idea. Nando's chicken. If you're in DC, get you some. You, um, because you can it get is the delicious. Sauce. You can get the sauce in most supermarkets. I would say they always put it in like the ethnic section. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, the sauce is amazing. You want this? You can pour this on anything. On eggs. You can pour it on mm, uh, chicken. I love hot sauce on you eggs. can put it. Yeah, you can put it like in a burger. It's great. We should Nando. We should reach out and see if they want to like. Sponsor like the show? this is totally yeah because this is totally organic yeah. like they're not paying totally. us anything for this like so those are the kind of sponsors you want right <laughs> like you, yeah. you, like companies you actually like um, totally. but anyway uh, just a little just a little thought uh, but anyway thank you so much for watching everyone um, have an awesome weekend and we'll see you next week.